Every year, the U.S. publishes a list of the most popular children's name from the year before. And so, for example, in 2016, the most popular girl's name was, anybody want to venture a guess? Sophia. Sophia. I looked, I looked it up on the hub. We have seven Sophias in our church. The most popular boy's name for last year was, anybody want to guess? Jackson. I also looked that up. We only have four lagging a little behind on the boys. So I read through the top 100 names while I was incredibly disappointed that Scott did not make the list. Others were notably and shockingly absent. The first was Brutus. When I was in high school, my best friend had a great Dane named Brutus. Do, a, do an image search and you'll find lots of dogs named Brutus. As many of you may remember from Act 3, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Brutus was the trusted friend who murdered Julius Caesar in the Senate. Brutus then became known as one of the most famous traitors in history. I have personally, now just, I'm just talking about me, I have personally never known someone named Brutus. Now, I know someone's going to come up to me and say, I have a great uncle on my mother's side from Bosnia named Brutus. That's great. <laughs> okay, I'm sure that there are exceptions. He still didn't make the top 100 list. I conducted another search for the name Benedict. I love eggs, Benedict. English muffin, poached egg, Canadian bacon, real hollandaise, not that powder stuff. But the name Benedict did not appear in the top 100 either. Why? Well, most of you know that General Benedict Arnold is perhaps the most famous traitor in American history. During the American Revolutionary War, he corroborated with the enemy, promising to hand over West Point to the British uh, in trade for money and a commission in the British Army. The plot was uncovered and Benedict was forced to flee. Soon thereafter, he actually led British forces into battle against the Continental. That's the U.S. Army with whom he had once served. He eventually went to England where he died in relative obscurity because, you see, even the British don't like traitors. There are other traitors we could discuss, but without doubt, the most famous of all traitors. His picture appears next to the definition of traitor in most dictionaries is Judas. Judas did not appear in the top 100 last year, nor any year that I could find. Most people don't even name their dogs Judas. Here, Judas. Sit, Judas. Good, Judas. That doesn't even work. Cats, maybe. <laughs> His traitor story is found in our text this morning, Mark chapter 14, verses 43 and following. It is a story that you perhaps know, the story of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ. Let's look at it together. Mark 14, verse 43 says, Immediately while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and seized him. 
But but one of those who stood by drew his sword and in a mighty flourish struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? That word could be translated and perhaps should be translated insurrectionist, seditionist. Every day I was with you in the temple preaching and, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Please notice there are actually three betrayals that take place, which will, of course, form our outline. The first is the betrayal of the, of the, of the crowd. You'll see what I mean in a moment. And then the betrayal, the infamous betrayal by Judas himself, and then betrayal of the disciples. As we begin, you should know, I want to just tell you at the outset that this is a story about Jesus, which means we are continuing to learn about the enormous price that Jesus paid for our redemption. Today, the irreversible events leading to his crucifixion are put into motion, beginning with this, his betrayal and arrest. I say this because there's not a lot of personal application that we can make for our lives this morning. Because here's the point. We could not have done what Jesus did. Only his death and his resurrection could possibly secure our eternal salvation. So we're going to focus on him today. Let's start by looking at this large crowd that came to get him in verse 43. It's Thursday night, probably a little after midnight by now. Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, which means it was facing Jerusalem. He, he, he'd left eight of his disciples at the entrance and, and gone, gone about a stone's throw into, the, into this olive tree garden. Then he left the other three, Peter, James, and John, behind to watch and, and, and pray with him. He went about a stone's throw further into the garden and, and prayed three times. Father, if, it, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And each time he returned to find his disciples asleep. After the, after the third time, he woke them with these words in verse 41. Are you still sleeping and, and resting? It is enough. The, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's be going. Behold, the one who, is, who betrays me is at hand. And while he was still speaking, he looked across the garden and, uh, to the entrance and, and saw the crowd led by Judas making their way toward him. Matthew says it was a large crowd, and that's because it was comprised of a lot of different groups of people. Mark says that they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the, uh, and the elders. That means that's the three groups that comprise the Sanhedrin, making this a, an official delegation. John actually says that it included a Roman cohort. Now, a cohort usually consisted of about 600 men. And along with them, Luke says that officers from the temple came, that is the temple police, as well as some of the chief priests and the, and the elders themselves. This was, I want you to understand, this was a large, hostile group. Soldiers would have been the ones carrying the swords. The 
the police, the clubs. Now, I don't, I don't know if all 600 men from the Roman cohort were there. Doubtful, but I do think that it was a large group. Uh, in your imagination, see, 100, maybe more armed men, who hostile men who would come to arrest Jesus. Now, I guess we could ask the question, why would the Roman soldiers be involved at this particular point? I mean, no doubt Jesus had been accused of of insurrection to the Jewish leaders. That's why I think the word robber should be translated that way. This was a capital offense requiring Roman intervention, and and the Romans were especially careful during the festivals, especially this festival called Passover. Remember, they would even import extra soldiers to squash any rebellion. We remember they had already arrested a seditionist, an insurrectionist, one by the name of Barabbas, who had committed murder. Jesus, who claimed to be a king, would not be received well by the Romans. I say this large group betrayed him because, well, Jesus says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as, as you would against the robber, a seditionist, a bandit. I, every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and, and you didn't seize me then. I, I haven't been in hiding. Why didn't you take me then in, in front of the crowds? And Luke adds these interesting words. Jesus said, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. In other words, I was with you in the temple with all of the people, and you were scared to take me, afraid to start a riot. Fine, this is the hour. The power of darkness is with you. Take me now. Now again, why do you suppose that so many were sent to get Jesus? Why such a large crowd? Again, I don't know if all 600 soldiers were there or not, but it is obviously a large group. Here's my question, why? I think they were scared. I think they had heard of Jesus. I think they'd heard the stories. The, the time that up in Nazareth, they, they took him to a cliff and we're going to throw him off and he walked right through the middle of them. The time right there in Jerusalem, they picked up stones to stone him and they walked right through the middle of them. They'd heard about the miracles. They had even accused him of being in league with Satan. Once before, the temple police had been sent to arrest him and they came back astounded, uh, astonished at his teaching, but empty-handed. Perhaps they thought, not this time, there will be no escaping. So get the picture in your mind. Jesus surrounded by a large crowd of armed men. He's got 11 very courageous disciples with him. We read elsewhere with two swords, (laughs) groggy, sleepy disciples. That's the picture. I'm sure the crowd is feeling very powerful, uh, pretty confident, Big, bad, mean. And then something happens that Mark, for whatever reason, does not record, but John does, and since it's my, one of my favorite stories, I get to tell it. In John chapter 18, I want you to understand it's the same event. We're in the garden, the soldiers are approaching, and we read this. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, stop right there. Jesus, knowing... All the things that were coming upon him, knowing everything that is about to happen over the next 12 hours, the arrest, the beatings, the scourging, the crucifixion, went forth to meet them. 
Get that. Father, into your hands, I, uh, I, I mean, uh, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, take this cup away, but not my will, but yours be done. He, he could have at this point run. He knew what was coming, and he went out to meet them. Throughout the Gospels, we are consistently and constantly reminded that Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. Did, 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 he, did he struggle in his humanity? We saw that last week. You bad. Was he obedient? You bad. He went forth and said to them, I love this part, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And then he says two very simple words in the Greek, ego eimi, which simply translated is I am. Now I know on the screen it says I am he, but he is in the italics because it's not in the text. I am. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> Why? Because I am is the name of God introduced to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus was saying two very clear things. First, I want you to understand that I am the I am. I want you to understand who I am, who, who it is that you've come to arrest. You have come to arrest God himself. And second, I want you to understand you may think you're in charge, but you are not in control. And they fall to the ground. Get the picture. Large group of men armed to the teeth. Jesus, this itinerant Rabbi, 11 sleepy disciples, you may know them as bashful, dopey, sleepy, grumpy, sneezy, goofy. <laughs> Former fishermen, tax collectors, big bad men. And this is looking an awful lot like David and Goliath. Who, 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 who is it that you want? I am. Boom, they fall to the ground. Why? I want you to understand you're not in charge. I want you to understand who I am. I firmly believe at this point Jesus could have said nothing further, walked right out again, stepped over the top of them just like he had done before, but not this time because this was his time. It was the reason for which he'd come. So he asked them again, get the picture, big crowd on the ground, on their faces. I said, who are you looking for? And from the ground, they look up rather timidly and meekly, and they say, um, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I told you I am. Let these other ones go. And so they get up, and they, arrest, they seize him. They arrest him. I want you to understand that John underscores the truth that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. It, 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 it really was true. As Jesus would later tell Pilate, you would have no power over me at all if I were not given you from above. You, Pilate, you think you're big, you think you're strong, you think you're in charge, but you are not in control. I would make this application to you. Do, do you ever feel outnumbered, tiny, small, like those who are arrayed against you are, are greater than those who are, are with you, may I remind you, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It is true, the old saying, you plus God make a majority. No matter the crowds, how, no matter how big, how bad, how threatening, no matter how sharp the swords, how threatening the clubs, they are not in control. God is. I don't want to sound flippant or trite here, but even if you find yourself in, in, in a small band of brothers and sisters surrounded by, uh, by those who would threaten you because of your faith, God is still in control. I, I, he, he does not promise to deliver, but he is in charge. It brings us to our second point, the very infamous 
betrayal by Judas Iscariot. Now notice in verse 43, Mark refers to Judas as one of the 12. I find that fascinating. It's like we forgot or something. One of the 12. (laughs) Not exactly. Did did you know that Judas is referred to as one of the 12 by all of the gospel writers? In fact, eight of the nine times that that phrase, one of the 12 appears, it's referring to Judas. (laughs) The only other time is it's referring to Thomas in John 20, the one who didn't believe. One of the 12 didn't believe the resurrection. Over and over, Judas, one of the 12. Why? I believe it emphasizes the enormity of, of his betrayal. This is not just any Tom, Dick, or Harry. This was Judas, the Judas, not just any Judas. Judas was a very, by the way, you might find this interesting. Judas was a very common name back then. Not now, back then it was. This was Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, one of the actual band of Jesus' brothers, his disciple, the one who betrayed him. You can't even hear Judas without that ringing in your mind, the one who betrayed him. Interesting, most movies or paintings Displaying Judas depict him as this mousy, beady-eyed weasel who looks like a crook. I just copied those off the internet. I know Judas is misspelled, but that was on the picture. <laughs> Look closely. The guy on the left even has pointed ears. His name was Basil Rathbone, and he played the lead character in a play called Judas in 1929. Quite stereotypical. But but, but remember earlier that evening when Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me, not one of them said, it is a Jew, it must be Judas. The guy looks like a weasel. Nobody said that. (laughs) There have been all kinds of legends that have arisen about this guy. Uh, mainly from apocryphal writings. When I say apocryphal, that's writings about this time that are not considered Scripture. One such writing is entitled The Story of Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to find out about him. He's one of those that buried Jesus. The story of uh, Joseph of Arimathea says that Judas was a nephew to the high priest Caiaphas and had been sent in from the very beginning to infiltrate Jesus' band of disciples. That's an incredible story. Why? Because the thought of one of the 12 actually betraying Jesus is quite difficult to accept, but he did because there can be wolves in sheep's clothing. People can fake being followers of Christ for what they can get out of it. For Judas, it was money. Turn on so-called Christian TV. You'll see lots of Judases. Another book called The The Acts of Pilate (laughs) says that after the betrayal, Judas went home to tell his wife what had happened, and she found her in the kitchen roasting a chicken. He told his wife that he was going to commit suicide because he was afraid Jesus was going to rise from the dead. She mocked him and said, Jesus can no more rise from the dead than this chicken that I'm cooking would jump out of the fire. The legend says the chicken did just that. No, it doesn't mean anything. I just found it a funny story. All we really know, you see, about Judas is that he was one of the 12, a professing disciple probably from the area of Kiriath, that's what Iscariot likely means, who who never really accepted Jesus and who betrayed him. As you know, Judas had gone to the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, and, and agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. 
He'd been looking for an opportune time. But remember, remember, he he was supposed to wait until after the eight-day celebration of Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't want to cause a riot, remember? But, But Jesus said, no, now would be the perfect time. He sent Judas to get the crowd. So even though the feast had just begun with Passover that particular evening, we had seven days left. Judas acted prompted by Jesus. What's the point? Jesus tipped over the domino that would begin the chain of events because he's in charge. One additional piece of information you might be interested to know. John 13 says that Satan entered Judas at the Last Supper right before he leaves that Last Supper. Judas was possessed, get this, Judas was possessed by Satan himself. While he was culpable for his actions in rejecting and betraying the Messiah, his actions were made that much worse by the indwelling presence of none other than Satan himself. It adds to the vileness of the event. In the garden, the man Judas kissed the man Jesus in betrayal, but it was really much more than that. In the garden, Satan in betrayal kissed God. One said it this way, uh, evil was kissing holiness, murder was kissing life, the life stealer was kissing the life giver, hatred was kissing love. Perdition was kissing grace. It is the picture of absolute hypocrisy. It was a kiss to kill. I I want you to remember the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, Judas, even Satan was not in charge. God was. And while they wanted to wait until after the festival, God said, no, now would be the perfect time. You'll take me when I say, you will take me now at the Passover because I am the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Judas had left quickly to gather this large mob. He he, he told them, the one I kiss is Jesus, arrest him. Now, you may wonder about that. I mean, wasn't Jesus popular, easily identifiable. He was rather well-known, but remember, it's night. It's dark. They didn't have street lamps, and they wanted wanted there to be no confusion, no mistake. He'd slipped away before. Not this time, by golly. Judas, you've been with him for, for three years. Identify him, and we'll take it from there. Perhaps Judas led the crowd to the upper room first. It was the last space I'm just surmising here. It was the last place he'd seen Jesus, but the place was empty. And so after that, uh, he thought, wait, 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 Jesus likely uh, is at the garden. He'd often gone there to pray with his disciples. And and so they make their way through the same streets across the Kidron Valley to Gethsemane. And Judas marches up to Jesus in great pretense and says, Rabbi, there was an address of, of a term of respect. Master teacher. And then he kisses him. Kiss was a common form of greeting at this time, but there were actually different kinds of kisses. A slave would sometimes kiss his master on the feet. Ordinary servants may kiss the hand of his master, uh, the hand of his master. To kiss them, the hem of the garment was a sign of reverence and devotion. But listen, an embrace and a kiss on the cheek was a sign of close affection and love, reserved for those with whom you had a close personal relationship. Judas was one of the 12, chose the latter of these kisses, heightening further the atrocity of the event. In feigned devotion, loving friendship, Judas kissed 
Jesus. In fact, it's an intensified form. They made a big deal about it. Luke tells us that Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? By this act of friendship, this act of commitment and relationship, are you betraying me? There are two, I think, very important um, let me back up there. It was, it was probably at this point this falling to the ground thing happened after which they laid hands on Jesus and seized him, which brings us to our third point, what I meant to say, the betrayal of the disciples. One of those with Jesus, I, I wonder who we read. John says, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high servant's slave and cut off his right ear. John even tells us the servant's name was Malchus, the ser- not just any servant, this was the servant, the right-hand guy uh, of the high priest. Now, two very important things I want you to say. First, Mark does not record it, but Jesus healed the man. Bent over, picked up the ear, and put it back on. Jesus was making clear this was not a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. Remember, Satan is present, and so was God. Matthew says, uh, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that those who, who take up the sword will perish by the sword? Peter, this is not a physical battle. Put your sword away. I don't need it. Peter, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Again, Matthew says, don't you know that I could at this moment call 12 legions of angels, one for me and one for each of you? 12 legions of angels. Do you know how many a legion is? A legion is six, over 6,000. Don't you know, Peter, that I could call over 72,000 angels if I wanted to? How much damage could a force that size do? One angel in Exodus 12 went throughout Egypt and killed all of the firstborn. One angel in 2 Kings chapter 19 killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. In Revelation, we read of a few angels wreaking havoc on the entire planet. How much damage, listen to me, how much damage could 72,000 angels do when they're God? who was being mistreated, called for them. Don't you know that I could do that? Don't you know I'm in charge? Peter, you don't understand. This is the reason for which I'd come. This is my hour. This is their hour of darkness. Satan had entered Judas. He, he, was, he, he was present in the garden just like, just like he was present in the first garden, only this time the second Adam would not be distracted. He would not be deterred. He would not be tripped up. There is a real sense in which Satan is attacking God here, and yet Jesus would ultimately win by his death and resurrection. But victory, know this, came through the cross. And it would not be won with a physical sword. Not this time. Later, Jesus would tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus' kingdom is not merely an earthly kingdom. It is a, it is a heavenly kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace. And his follower, as his followers, we bring the peace offered by the Prince of Peace. 
Can I suggest, go back in your history books right now, any so-called holy war fought in the name of Christ was anything but holy. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. So also as followers of Christ, our battles are not physical battles against physical people. We must, people, we must remember that. People are not the enemy. Yes, I understand that unbelievers are, are not children of God. I know that's really popular. Say, well, we're all children of God. Not exactly. Jesus in John chapter 8 said, if you're an unbeliever, you're a child of the devil. Don't want to offend you, but you are. That's what Jesus said. I understand that Paul says, in our unredeemed state, we are enemies of God. But, 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 but that's, that's only because they have been captured by the evil one. That's why we use the word redemption, to redeem them, to, to buy them back, to recapture them, if you will. People are not the enemy, even if they take up swords against us. I'm not talking about a governmental response. I'm talking about us as followers of Jesus. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful, the destruction of fortresses, the fortresses of the evil one. That's who we're fighting. It's, it's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, but, but, but against the rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's talking about demons. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil. And, and having done everything to stand firm. Who are we resisting? We're resisting the devil. People aren't the enemy. They've been captured by the enemy. Our job is to win them back. Even if they oppose us and take up swords against us. And chop our heads off. Peter, put your sword away. This is not a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And a spiritual battle is most often fought on your knees as I instructed you to do a couple of hours ago, but you didn't. The fact is, Peter boasted too loudly, prayed too little, slept too much, and acted too fast. And as a result, he always seemed to miss what the Lord was saying and doing. The crowd missed it too. Isn't it interesting that this large crowd, bent on arresting him, missed the fact that with one little phrase, ego and me, I am, they all fall to the ground. No sword, no clubs, no weapons at all, and he leveled them. They missed the fact that when a physical sword was used, he bent over and picked up the guy's ear and put it back on. They missed it. They missed it all. And they seized him. They arrested him and led him to his death. First thing I want you to understand that Jesus is saying here is this is not a physical battle, this is a spiritual battle. And the second thing I want you to see is this, I've already referenced it, but having prayed, having received strength, Jesus was resolved to face what lay before him because it was a fulfillment of unalterable prophecy. 
He says to the crowd in verse 49, you didn't arrest me in the temple, did you? You want to know why you didn't arrest me in the temple? Because all of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures and the prophets. Oh, I don't know, maybe Psalm 41. It says that a close friend would betray the Messiah. Isaiah said that he would be treated as a common criminal. Zechariah says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Do they? The point is this. You guys are just pawns. You think you're marching to the orders of the chief priests and the scribes and the the elders and maybe even the Roman governor, but you're not. You are marching to the orders of God and the fulfillment of Scripture. And Jesus willingly allowed himself to be seized, to be arrested, to be taken, to be crucified. Because it was the plan of the ages revealed in Scripture. All of this led to the betrayal of these Disciples, verse 50, in a few short, terse words, and they all left him and fled. Just like he said. And the betrayal was complete, which will bring us to the brink of the brutal, savage suffering of the cross. As as we close, Mark alone records... Verses 51 and 52, and all of my commentaries agree, these are very strange verses. A a young man was following Jesus. He's not identified, and lots of people through the centuries have tried to help Mark out, have tried to identify him. The most, I I could give you a list, I don't know, I think the, the longest list I saw was 13 different guesses. The most popular and perhaps the most reasonable is that he is none other than the author of this book, John Mark himself. And there's lots of rationale for that. And I could waste your time by talking about it. But from the text, we know uh, that he likely wasn't one of the 12. They they would not have been dressed this way for the last uh, Passover, the first Lord's Supper. Uh, Apparently, he dressed quickly, perhaps in the upper room, to follow Jesus and the 12 to the garden. And he stood by until Jesus was seized. Then he fled, like everyone else. You see, his identity is not important. What he did is he fled, like everyone else, like you would have, like I would have. And Jesus went to the cross alone, just like he predicted. You see, it wasn't just the 12 who fled, everybody fled. And, and so Jesus went alone. Listen, Jesus went alone to die for people who would not even stand by his side. Sleepers, betrayers, deserters, sinners. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Stand for prayer. Father, indeed, this is one story uh, uh, tucked away in the midst of a a, a number of stories that take us from the um, upper room to the cross. And yet we find in this story the the truth 
again as it's sprinkled all over the gospel narratives that you are in charge, that you knew what you were doing when you sent your son. Jesus, you knew what you were doing when you came and you willingly, not without personal struggle in your flesh, but you willingly went to lay down your life for the sheep to die for many. We are so thankful. We're thankful for who you are and what you did in the midst of great adversity, even when those who should have stood by you did not, even when you were dying for sinners like us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.